in a constantly changing world. Today is as simple as it gets. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, a podcast to explore, experiment, and power up your leadership to make the difference to your business, your people, and your success. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we dig deep into global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. So welcome to episode 30 of the Leadership Enigma. And I've been looking forward to this one because the person I'm going to talk to, I've been trying to pin down now for weeks, if not months, but that's because he's 6,000 miles away and eight hours behind me. So this will be the last episode of 2020. And I am absolutely delighted to be looking at and able to chat to Justin Farrell, who's friend, colleague, creative leader and educator. And Justin, welcome and tell everyone, how do we know each other? (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you, Adam. It's a real pleasure to be with you. And, uh, and uh, as we move into the holiday season, um, really appreciate it. Uh, so we met several years ago uh, when I was uh, an educator and you were working with uh, Duke CE. And uh, I can't remember the first, uh, the first thing that we did. Was it in Atlanta? Was, it, was that it, where we met? It might have been. You and yeah. I have appeared together in many countries. And That's right. It's been That's great right. fun, but I couldn't tell you all of the countries. That's right. I know. I couldn't either. But, but, um, but one thing I think, one of the reasons why we hit it off right away is because uh, we both had very robust careers before we moved into leadership and education. Yeah. And, and I think we both um, very much still care a lot about those previous careers and the people who, who practice them. Um, you know, you and, and law enforcement and, and me and journalism. And I think we both draw on those experiences heavily in how we think about leadership and change and, and things like that. So uh, it's, it's, it, I'm so grateful to call you my friend and I'm super uh, happy to talk to you today. I know we've both got big smiles on our faces, which people obviously <laughs> yeah, can't see, but uh, uh, it's really nice. And it's really nice that we've been able to do this episode before, you know, the end of what's been a, a really challenging year. Uh, and so we're, we're going to bring in some of your background, I think, into the conversation that we have anyway, because as you say, that that makes up who you are. It makes up the purpose that you have and the passion that you have for educating. And I, it's been a privilege for me to, to see you on your feet with with leaders and they get so much out of it. And we're really going to be, be looking, aren't we, about leading organizational change, which is relevant all the times. But boy, is it relevant at the moment. Justin, so you kick us off. Where should we go with this conversation? Sure. Uh, so I, I guess it might be helpful for for listeners to uh, know, you know, where I come from and, yeah. and kind of where how I got here. Um, you know, I am uh, t- today. I'm at home in in California in Palo Alto in the Bay Area. I'm jealous. Um, and uh, it's pretty nice. Pretty nice weather right now. My family and I we've lived here for nine years. Um, ever since. Uh, I had the opportunity to come to Stanford University as a journalism fellow, Yes, uh, which is a fantastic program for professional journalists who uh, are interested in, in studying at Stanford and working on a, a project around the future of journalism. And at the time, uh, nine years ago, I was working at the Washington Post. Uh, I had been a, a journalist uh, for all of my life uh, since right. I was 15 years old. Wow. I started writing for my local newspaper when I was 15, covering sports events. And, uh, and went to uh, college for journalism, got a degree in journalism and worked my way up in the newspaper industry and, and sort of found myself uh, at that time 
uh, really amid the chaotic change in that industry, right? right. Uh, newspapers were really suffering. Uh, circulation rates, you know, were going down and advertising was going down and, and digital advertising was not growing fast enough to make up the difference, right? Yeah, and you might course. say that that's still the case yes. uh, for a lot of publications, especially local publications. And, um, and I, at, the, at that time, I was a, a design director uh, in charge of digital design at the Washington Post. Um, but really, my job was about sort of building our, our capacity to work in different ways and building our expertise around, uh, you know, digital platforms, right? right? So hiring developers into the newsroom at the traditional Washington Post and uh, encouraging people to work with people who are different from them in order to create things together that they wouldn't be able to create on their own. And, and so it was very much just about, you know, the people, right? Who are the people uh, that we need to help us evolve? And how do we enable new ways of working and, and build trust between people with different skill sets in order for them to be able to work together um, in ways that are going to be creative and unexpected and, and impactful, you know, for the people that we serve. And that's really been a, a theme for you, hasn't it? A, a, a passion for you. It has. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know, one thing about being a journalist is that it is a... Uh, it is a constant drum of activity. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> you know, the world does not stop and there is always more and more news. Right. And, um, and so, you know, if you are thinking about your work or for me anyway, I, I used to think of my work as sort of a series of accomplishments early in my career, right? Like I, I got to work on this project. I did really well and I got to work on this project and, um, you know, and this, this was very rewarding as a project, uh, you know, elections and financial crisis and all kinds of really big, big things when you yeah. get to work in a place like the Washington Post with super talented people. Um, but somewhere along the line, I realized that, you know, if you only, if I only thought of my career and my work life as a series of accomplishments, there are always going to be other accomplishments to achieve, right? That there is a never ending uh, list of things to do, right? And, and as I thought about, um, you know, trying to achieve and trying to do well with those things, um, I started to realize that sort of satisfaction is fleeting, right? Because as soon as you're done with one thing, here comes the next thing, right? And, and if you start, if you think, you know, I was sort of thinking at the time of my sense of self-worth and my sense of, um, of, you know, value as these achievements, as the things that I've gotten to work on and when I did well. And not that there's anything, you know, particularly wrong with that, but for me, um, I started to feel that there was a, um, there had to be something more, right. Than just the, 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 the projects that we put out in the world. Yeah. And it wasn't until I sort of realized that it, it, for me, it was more about the people that I got to work with than the things that we got to work on. Right. Um, that if I were less outcome focused and more focused on how I work with other people and being curious and excited about what they bring to bear, and, you know, who do I get to talk to today? I get to talk to Adam and like, and we have different life experiences and we have different perspectives and what might we talk about together that I wouldn't be thinking about, you know, on my own, yeah. you know, and, and the less outcome focused I, I became and the more people focused I became, um, the, the more rewarding that was for me. Right? And, 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 and you've yeah. always been in, insatiably curious, which, you know, probably leads us into the, some of the amazing work that you're doing with global leaders at the moment. So, so help us understand, frame that for me. Mm. You know, you are working with, with leaders and, and organizations all over the world. 
mm-hmm. when when we're allowed to travel. But you're, I know you're doing that virtually as well. <laughs> but, but what is it you're doing to actually help people right now? I'm based at Stanford. Uh, I work at the design school at the Institute of Design. We call it the D School. Yep. Uh, I, I spent uh, I've a had year. the privilege of seeing you there. Wonderful, yes. wonderful yes. campus. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's an amazing place, you know. Um, it, it, one of the one of the birthplaces of design thinking, yep. which is really about um, engaging with people that you're trying to serve, trying to understand other people as best you can, and then apply your skill set to what you uncover in order to create something that's meaningful for them. So that's you know, that my, curiosity piece again, isn't it? Justin? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, my you know, design thinking has become such a brand in the world, and especially in the in the corporate world. Uh, as a way to to understand your customers, right? And especially as technology makes that increasingly important, you know, because it puts the the control and the decision making in the hands of of people, right? So understanding people and their behavior and their context is becoming a real different, you know, has become a big differentiator in yeah. in business, right? But as design thinking itself has sort of been commoditized and scaled as an innovation discipline. Um, you know, my definition of it is just super simple. Yep. It's, it's really trying to understand someone that you're trying to serve in some way uh, as best you can so that you can use your skills to make their life better, right? And, and for me, that core, that core um, approach is, is such a, a human uh, a way of thinking about our purpose, right? Uh, if I can understand someone else in a way that I can use what I'm good at to help them, right? What a, what a lovely motivator, right? If we, if we're all doing that, if we're all thinking about how, what am I good at and how can I help somebody else? Um, then of course we're, we're all getting along and we're all making, making the world better in a sense. So, um, so I'm based at the D school and, um, and have been, uh, here since, since I came out from my fellowship at the end of my fellowship year. Um, as my colleagues there offered me a job and it was totally unforeseen, and and, and the uh, rest is history. And the rest is history. Um, <laughs> you loved so it so I, much, you moved in. <laughs> that's right. So I, you know, I, I say yes a lot. That's that's a big thing for me is um, is just saying yes. You know, when people ask you for something and you're not quite sure if you can pull it off or if you know how to do that, you say yes, and you give yourself a challenge to to meet. And um, and that one was really easy to say yes to. So uh, so I spend half my time uh, at the D school. Uh, working with my amazing colleagues there. And, yeah. and then I spent half my time out in the world, you know, as a, as an educator in, in corporate education um, and work with, you know, several different uh, networks like, like, uh, like Duke and, and others. Um, and then also have a lot of folks that, that I work with on my own that I've met yeah. over the years that I have, you know, repeat work with. So, um, and thankfully yeah. that's how, that's how we met as, uh, as you said. So let me, let me come back to some of the, the, the challenges that you're helping leaders with at the moment. Cause we, mm-hmm. we talked earlier about leading organizational change, innovation and new ways of working. So what are some of the, the critical challenges that you're seeing leaders grapple with right now? Our instinct most often is to think about the, the it in a way, right? The project that we're working on, the outcome yeah. that we're trying to achieve. Okay. You know, what, what is the innovative product or service or system or technology that we're working on, right? And, and this is partly why I was talking about, you know, my own journey. Uh, I was the same, right? I yeah. understand that, right? In the newspaper business, you have a newspaper to put out every day, right? And that is the thing that you are working on that you're There's trying your product. To, to do your best with. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we also know that there is a lot that goes into that, right? That the way of working, you know, who's working on a project and, uh, how how do we trust each other? 
Um, how do we navigate you know, the ambiguity of not knowing what the yeah. outcome is going to be if we're trying to achieve something that's never been done? All of those sort of human factors uh, really determine the quality of what we create, right? And so um, those are the challenges that I focus on, right? And, and I think they've only been exacerbated this year by you know, all of the factors that we've all been living in, you know, not being in the same room with each other, um, other, you know, other things in our personal lives that, that we're dealing with and weighing and just sort of the cognitive load of, 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 uh, of going through, um, this time. Right. And so a lot of what I work with companies on is, you know, it's not, it's not for me about being an expert in the, in the product or service. It's more about what is your communication structure? Uh, how are you forming your teams? Um, you know, how do you build creative self-efficacy with the people that you're working with? How do you help them um, step into a place where they believe that they can accomplish what they set out to do in a way that they never have before, right? right. So, so all of those sort of behaviors that go into creating the new products and services and, and systems that the world has never seen, um, that, that's the area that I focus on. And and we spoke earlier, didn't we, about in times of chaos, and I think this is fair to say that this has been quite a chaotic year, that there's an instinct, isn't there, for leaders and people to retrench, to get a sense of control. So do they go back in on what they know or what they've relied on in the past because they get a little bit of control out of that? But that's probably not the answer, is it, that they're seeking? When you're working on um, the, the kind of innovation that is about uh, something that's never been done, yeah. right? So. You know, I, I, I borrow from uh, a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my mentors uh, at Stanford. And, uh, and one of my mentors is a, is a professor at the business school named Charles O'Reilly. And Charles talks about uh, organizational ambidexterity, right? Yes. Uh, you have your core business, you know, the things that you do every day that have made you a successful business, right? And of course, you have to incrementally improve those things in a continuous improvement sort of way, right? You, and we would call that incremental innovation, right? Taking what you already do and making it better. And didn't, didn't Charles work with, is it Michael Tushman? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so they, Harvard, okay, yeah. right, about, that's okay, right. fine. Okay, exactly right. right. Yeah, I, so, I feel so very knowledgeable this, now. But. <laughs> that's wonderful. And, uh, and so their concept of the ambidextrous organization, so you have the core side and then you have the new, right? The explore and, and the exploit. Exactly right, yeah. exactly. So on the explorer side, you know, no one can consistently predict the thing that doesn't yet exist that is going to make a difference in the world, right? It's not, you know, it's not a lone genius in a dark room coming up with this eureka moment, mm-hmm. right? But organizations really struggle to both exploit in the present, in the core, yes. and explore on the future how they might take their, you know, um, capabilities and apply them in an unconventional right. way in order to create new revenue streams. It's very difficult to do both of those at the same time yeah. because they require very different skills. Right. Very different leadership skills. Very different leadership skills, right? I mean, it's essentially on the core side as a leader, you're saying, here's the target we're trying to hit, right? So you're predetermining the outcome and you're saying, let's move toward that outcome in the most efficient quality way vis-a-vis the resources we deploy in order to achieve the margin we want to get, right? But on the explore side, you can't say, here's where we're trying to go. Right. Not definitively, because, again, if you know at the outset, it's probably not something that's never been done. It's probably incremental. Right. And so instead, you're saying, I don't know where we're going to end up, but I have a way for us to get there. Right. Which sounds counterintuitive, but that's actually how it works. Right. And design thinking is one way to get to those unimagined outcomes by learning as you go. 
right? Which also, you know, a lot of these concepts, they're not, they're not rocket science. You know, the, the sort of mentor of design thinking and mentor to me, David Kelly, who's the founder of the D School and, yeah. and founder of IDEO, um, professor at Stanford, you know, he, he likes to say, like, these things are not, they're not new, right? It's just surprisingly hard to do. It's very difficult for us to learn as we go because most of us want to know where we're going to end up when right. we start something, right? So, you know, I like to say, you don't want to know what the 10th step is as a leader of this kind of innovation. You only need to know what the next step is, right? And you try your experiment, you step into that next step and you learn from that experience and that learning determines your next step and that learning determines your next step and so forth. So by the time you get to the 10th step, you can look back at where you started and say, Hey, we're in a place that we never would have expected. And that's how you know you're on the right track to creating something new. Right. And this needs a real culture of experimentation, doesn't it, Justin? So that people can have a go, fail fast, learn yes. Yes. through no, and have no fear of getting yes. it wrong. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's difficult enough to feel that yourself. Right. You know, I mean, I, I think there are so many factors that go into your ability individually to embrace change, to embrace learning. You know, to be in a, in, a, in a competitive professional environment and say, I, I don't really know the answer, right? You know, early on for me, when I was trying to come up in my career, I wanted to always know the answer. I wanted to look proficient. You know, I wanted to be someone that, that the leaders would trust and promote and give new opportunities to, right? As I get older, I'm less worried about that. I'm more, now I'm more like, hey, I have no idea. Tell me more about that, right? Um, and so some of it has to do with just sort of our own you know, comfortability with where we are in our careers, right? And early on, you know, for a lot of folks, you're, you're trying to show that you're, that you're talented, that you have the skills to, to move up, right? Um, but it's, it's difficult enough to feel that as an individual, right? When you start to then apply it in teams, you know, yeah. every person you're, you're trying to work with, every time you add a person, it becomes exponentially complex, right? So how do you hold risk within a team, right? I think that's where some of these these frameworks and and pedagogies like design thinking, like the ambidextrous organization, become really useful, right? Because they give us a way to engage that allows us to to you know hold on to risk and to learn as we go and to embrace a prototyping mindset, like all of those kinds of things, right? So, you know, that's where uh, learning those ways of working and having that become sort of part of your vernacular. Right, then allows you to, to, to do that as a group. Now, we talked again earlier about really the concept of navigating ambiguity, which everybody has become maybe a little bit better at doing in a forced way because of the current year. What do you think is the, you know, what advice would you have for leaders at the moment who are just struggling with living, leading and making decisions in constant ambiguity? Uh, where do they start? I think that uh, it's more important now than ever to recognize the the sort of human factor of how people are feeling. Yes. In in addition to what we're working on, right? Um, it, I I think a lot about um, the sort of uh, uh, simultaneous things that are happening when we're working on a project. I think of a and one of the sort of frameworks I use is is this sort of I, we, and it. Okay. Right? And sort of in concentric circles, right? So, you know, whatever you're working on, like, so, so for example, right now we're recording a podcast, right? That would be the it. The it is this episode. Okay. Right? 
and and we want to have a good episode. We want it to be useful for people. We want you know those of you who are listening to to be able to think differently about something, to get something of value out of this, right? And that's the reason why we're doing it. But also, what's happening beneath that that outcome is is we. You know, there's me and you, and how we're conversing, and how do we build on each other? How do we get to something new? The interaction together, yeah, okay. the interaction, right? And so often that's more than just a one to one. It's a team that you're working with. And then there's also the I that's happening. What am I learning? How am I feeling? You know, what's happening below the surface, right? And so anytime we're working on a project in, in business, there is the, the outcome that we're trying to achieve, the it. Yep. But there's also the we, how are we working together? Who's working together? What are the handoffs, you know, in the, in the, in the pipeline of this project? And then there's the individual, right? When am I comfortable? When am I uncomfortable? When am I leading from my expertise? When am I learning from someone else's, right? And so I, I think with what's happening now, you know, oftentimes when, when things are pretty stable and we have a routine, you know, and we have regular work hours and we have a regular way to get to work or going to work in the first place, right? And we have regular meetings yeah, and things quite. like that. Like th those routines can help us, you know, have stability around the I and the we, right? And focus a little more on the, on the outcomes, on the it. But right now, all of that has been thrown up in the air. And so I think it's more important for, for leaders now to find out, like, what's going on with you personally? How are you feeling today? What are you bringing to this interaction that we're about to have? How do you, how do you express that so we can get it out a little bit, you know, that they'll make it easier for us to then work together, right? Because, you know, I may have just walked into my home office uh, after, you know, helping my son with his math homework, and he's very frustrated, right? So I'm probably still bringing that experience in to this conversation, you know? And so I think for leaders now, it's, it's even more important to sort of dig into the personal and not just focus on the outcomes you're trying to achieve, but on where people are and, and how are you working together in order to get there. I love that answer. I, we, it, which I've written down on my new little pad here. Uh, I think that's great. I think that's, see, that's a lovely kind of takeaway as people are listening to that thinking, great, you know, as I come across the next, almost daily, you know, bit of ambiguity or challenge, I, we, it. So where, where, how are we with something else as well? Because I've been doing a lot of work recently on behaviors and how behaviors can support the values of a business and behaviors can actually undermine the values of a business. And based on my book as well, the research that I'm doing, which this is why I wanted to have this conversation, is very much about human-centered leadership. Uh, and you're talking a lot about human-centered work. But where do behaviors fit into some of the things that you're doing to help leaders uh, and organizations? Well, I, I think the behaviors are the foundation, right? Okay. I, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I learn a lot from, from other people who do, you know, their longitudinal research, you know, uh, things like growth mindset. And Albert Bandura is one of the, the mentors of David Kelly. He's a professor at Stanford. He talks about behavior change happening uh, in a series of small successes and, and guided mastery as a, as an approach to behavior change, right? Like rather than trying to take a leap into a big change, how do you learn as you go and have a series of small successes, right. get comfortable being uncomfortable. As soon as you're comfortable again, then you get a little more uncomfortable being uncomfortable and so forth. Okay. Um, so there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of uh, sort of great resources and studies of, of people who've sort of dedicated their, their work to different aspects of, uh, designing for behaviors or how to encourage behaviors. Right. Um, but I, I really think it's, the, it's the foundation, right? Um, one of my colleagues, uh, who used to, used to be at the D school and now is at uh, Columbia in New York. 
His name is Adam Royalty. And I, I love one of the, the research sort of frameworks that he has, which is basically sort of the path from creative self-efficacy or creative confidence. So what David Kelly calls it. He has a yes. book called Creative Confidence. Creative self-efficacy to creative impact in the world, right? And if you think about as a company, we want to make a, an impact in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And we want to be an innovative company. We want to create products and services that are at the edge of our industry, yeah. right? that serve people in new ways, right? And be a if, force if, for good. A force for good and, you know, for success, right? Yes. I mean, we, we have to be viable as a, as a company in order to, to exist and survive, right? So as the world changes, we have opportunities to change ourselves in order to shape the new future, right? And, and that's where we want to be. Um, but if you want to have that creative impact in the world, what, what Adam's work shows us is that internally, it really begins with how individual employees uh, embrace their creative self-efficacy. And, and what we mean by that is self-efficacy is the belief that you can accomplish what you set out to do. Then creative self-efficacy is the belief that you can accomplish what you set out to do in a way that you never have before. Right. So how do you take what you're good at and try something different with it in order to begin the journey to creating something that hasn't been done before, right? And so that's a very internal feeling. That's behavior-based, right? Most of us like to do things that we already know how to do we like to stick with what we know because that's what we're good at. And we like to do things that we're good at, right? And, but if we only do the same things we've always done, we're never going to create something different, right? That's actually the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, <laughs> expecting a different outcome, right? So, so we all have to step out of our comfort zone, try something different. And, and that could be working with someone that we wouldn't normally work with, you know, and embracing the sort of conflict of our differences, knowing that that conflict is going to make us more creative than if we just worked alone or we worked with people who agreed with us all the time or had the same skill sets, right? So um, sometimes it's about that. Sometimes it's about working in a new area, right? Whatever it may be. But, but we have to believe that we can get to something meaningful yeah. in order to sort of begin that journey. And then the next stage for, for Adam's uh, framework is, so creative self-efficacy as an individual then becomes creative agency as a team. You put that idea into practice, right? With other people and the work that you're doing, that creative agency yields what he calls creative outcomes, right? The manifestations of your team's work. And then you hope those outcomes then have an impact in the world, right? So these sort of four phases. But what I love about it is that, you know, when as a company you say, we want to be an innovative company in the world, we want to create these meaningful outcomes, then you can go back as a leader and say, well, how, what am I doing to incentivize personal risk? How am I helping my employees and my teams embrace their self-efficacy, right? And have confidence with the uncomfortable. And promote those behaviors. And promote those behaviors, right? And so that's why I think the, the behaviors are really the foundation because this, this type of work is a very inside out process. You're never gonna get to those innovative outcomes if people don't work in different ways, right? And how you incentivize that, um, you know, the, the yields, yields the more innovative outcomes, right? One of the phrases we use is, is lead, I, I always say lead for the behaviors rather than the outcomes, right. because the innovative outcomes emerge from the behaviors, right? Oh, 
This is why I love hanging out with you, Justin. <laughs> I've missed this. I really have. There's something quite cathartic about this entire experience. I told you I get more out of this than anyone else, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I appreciate that. I appreciate no, that. I mean, but, but one, of the, one of the things about that, Adam, is that like, it, it means that you as the leader don't have to always have the, the answer. In fact, if you have the answer, you know, even if it is an innovative answer, even if it is, if you can predict a thing that's going to, you know, change your sector that doesn't yet exist, that's not going to be sustainable. You can't, you can't rely on that over and over and over again. And so in a lot of ways, the sort of letting go of knowing where you're going to end up is cathartic, right? It's saying, I don't know where we're going to end up, but I have a way for us to get there. And the way we're going to get there is by focusing on each other, the way we work together, focusing on the people we're trying to serve, Right. And design thinking has a whole lot of tools and and ways to do that. Extreme users and point of view statements and all these things. Right. But focusing on the, the, the people that we're trying to serve in order to, again, like use what we're good at to make their life better. And that becomes its own motivator. Right. It's, it's a very optimistic way of looking at, you know, our purpose in the world. And, and as we're having this conversation, I'm remembering some of the amazing stories and experiences that you use to provide context when you're working with leadership teams so uh it, it, i just crave i crave for those days again very soon now we're <laughs> we, we're we're simply sk- skipping over some of the surface of of this it is a fascinating subject so my question is how can people get in touch with you justin if they want to know more and they should want to know more because this is powerful stuff oh well thanks um you know, they can get in touch with me on, on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at uh, jferrell 3 is my Twitter handle. Okay. Um, you can email me. I, you know, I hear from people. Uh, uh, I love it when I hear from people I've never met before. You know, they'll say, oh, I saw this thing online or whatever. <laughs> Be careful have a, what you wish for. Yeah. <laughs> well, we all have a digital footprint, you know, and so they'll say, I saw this thing and, and I liked it. And, you know, could you point me to this or that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, for me, it's really... Uh, the older I get, the more I think um, I just want to, you know, work on what I, what I've learned and how can I share what I've learned to be a resource with other people. Yeah. I joke that, you know, I don't want to be well-rounded anymore. I don't want to be great at everything. I just want to work on what I'm good at. Yeah. Right. And so for me, it's, it's always like, how can I be a resource for others? So you can email me if they want. Uh, Jay Farrell at stanford.edu uh, is the easiest way to okay. remember and get to me. So Great. Yeah. Well, as we bring this to a close, I've got a couple of fun questions that I, I, I want to ask you as well. Great. And um, I'm going to go straight to my, my probably my, the one I like the most. And that's what would be your best advice to a 21-year-old Justin? <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, um, embrace where you are. Stop thinking about the next thing in terms of, you know, your next job or what you're working toward and really embrace where you are. Enjoy the, the journey. Enjoy the journey. Yeah. And, and a little bit, you know, <laughs> for me, Adam, as you, as you know, uh, the most amazing opportunities that I've gotten are things that I didn't particularly aim for, you know? Um, and, and we talked about this a little just before we started recording that, you know, I, I said, I, I think the best things in life are the, you know, are often the things that are unexpected. I didn't, I didn't think that I would get to teach at Stanford. That wasn't something I was aiming for, right? That's been an amazing, amazing blessing to me. And I'm super grateful for the people who gave me that opportunity. And whenever I, I have an opportunity like that, I always feel like, wow, I need to do as well at what I'm bringing to this collaboration as the people I get to work with are at what they bring, 
right? And when you work in a place like the Washington Post or Stanford, that's a really high bar, right? So you challenge yourself to say, I don't have to know what they know. I need to be uh, to know what I know and, and be a resource with what I know at the same level that they are with what they know. And that becomes a huge challenge, right? Um, but at 21, I felt like, you know, I was always trying to map everything out for myself. You know, here's the position I want in my career. Here's what I'm aiming toward. And the funny thing is that, you know, often what you're aiming toward is not where you're meant to be. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, sure. My first uh, full-time job as a journalist uh, was at a tiny newspaper in Florida, in St. Augustine, Florida, which is near where I grew up. Yeah. And uh, there were only three of us in the sports department, and we had to go out and cover, you know, games and, and events and come back and then lay them out in the newspaper. And I had never learned in college about how to lay things out in a newspaper. I'd been a reporter. And when I applied for jobs around the country in the, in the U.S. To, to work at bigger newspapers, I sent my clips. In those days, you had to cut them out. That's why they're called clips. You'd cut them out of the newspaper. You'd put them in an envelope. You'd send them to people. Oh, yeah. the old-fashioned The old days. The old days, right? And um, I kept getting rejection after rejection after rejection for my writing. And one day I got a call from someone from a newspaper in North Carolina. And I said, oh, do, do you like my writing? They said, we want to interview you. I said, oh, do you like my writing? They said, oh, no, no, no. We don't really like your writing. Uh, we're wondering, did you write these headlines? Did you lay out these pages? I said, yes. I said, well, we're interested in you as a copy editor, as a designer. Right. I said, oh, okay. Right. I said, yes. I said, all right, well, great. Let's go talk about that. Right. So, and, and that's how I began my design career. Yeah. In North Carolina. Five years later, I was at the Washington Post as a designer, you know, and I, I work. And so sometimes the plans that we have for ourselves are not the impact that we're meant to make in the world. Right. And that has happened to me, Adam, over and over and over again. The thing that I wanted to be that I thought I wanted to be. Others have seen things in me and said, oh, no, we'd like you to try this. Right. And then I've, I've made an impact faster because, you know, I was I was more suited for that opportunity. Right. And so. At 21, I think it's really about letting go of what, for me, what I thought I wanted to be in the world and being open to, to saying yes and trying different things and finding where I'm meant to be more than what my aspiration was. What a lovely way of finishing <laughs> the final episode of 2020. You know, this was meant <laughs> to be, Justin. That's why I've been hounding you now to come <laughs> on to the Leadership Enigma. And so I'm grateful to you. Listen, it's been a blast. As I say, on a personal level, it's just amazing to catch up with you again. Uh, missed you. Missed Thank working you, with you, hanging out. Um, our time will come again sooner than we know in 2021. <laughs> But I just want to say you're a superstar. Thank you so much for being on the video. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Really grateful to you, Adam. Appreciate it. Join us again next week for more essential insights on the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or via our website, www.pca-global.com. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening.